Let me invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of Hebrews and to the fifth chapter and the first verse. Hebrews chapter 5, where we'll begin reading in a moment in verse 1. If the Lord wills, our pursuit on these final three Wednesdays of October is to consider Christ in his three offices, Christ in his fulfillment of each of the great offices of the Old Testament. Our pursuit, in other words, is to consider how Jesus is to his people, prophet and priest and king. And this evening, in particular, we come to consider Christ in the office of priest, Christ our priest. And we begin tonight here in Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 1 through 6. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, Father, help us now. Christ, our great high priest, intercede for us now that we might, that I might speak clearly and that we might hear clearly and love what we hear about you, our high priest. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Melchizedek, not the most well-known player ever to make his way across the stage in God's unfolding drama of redemption. He's mentioned only twice in the Old Testament, once as he actually comes onto the stage briefly in Genesis 14 where he's called King of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. And then he's mentioned a second time in Psalm 110 where the coming Messiah is said to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And even in the New Testament, Melchizedek is only ever mentioned here in the book of Hebrews and only in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so if we were designing the printed program or running the movie credits for God's real-life drama of redemption, this character, Melchizedek, would probably be fairly far down the list of cast members. And yet, though Melchizedek's appearance on the stage is really only of the cameo variety, yet we are shown in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, and especially in chapter 7, that his role in God's plan, though brief, was yet a very important one. And Melchizedek's role is important, we're shown in these chapters, precisely in the area of theology which we've come to consider tonight, namely Christ's priesthood. Under the old 
covenant, under the covenant that God gave to his people through Moses, the priests were only ever to come from one particular Israelite tribe, from the tribe of Levi. Under the Mosaic covenant, the priests were only ever to come from the tribe of Levi. But, as we're reminded in Hebrews 7.14, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So, it is evident, in other words, that Jesus, whom we are considering as priest tonight, Jesus, whom the author of Hebrews has called priest four times in his first four chapters, it is evident that Jesus did not come from the priestly tribe of the Old Testament. And herein lies the importance of Melchizedek, as it's unpacked for us here in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, and especially chapter 7. We don't know a great deal about who exactly Melchizedek was, but the reality is that any way we slice it, Melchizedek was not from the tribe of Levi. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7. Melchizedek was not from the Old Covenant priestly tribe. Levi, in fact, had not been born yet, verses 9 and 10, when Melchizedek walked across the stage of the Old Testament. Indeed, Levi was still three generations away when Melchizedek met and received a tithe from Levi's great-grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis 14. And yet, though Levi had not yet been born in Genesis 14, and though the Old Covenant had not yet been given, Melchizedek is called, in that chapter, a priest of God Most High. Priest, here in chapter 7, verse 1, of the Most High God, which demonstrates, as we're being shown in chapters 5, 6, and 7, that the priesthood of Melchizedek demonstrates that God has appointed a priest apart from the Mosaic Covenant, from outside the tribe of Levi. In Psalm 110, verse 4, which is the other place that the Old Testament mentions Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4, which the author of Hebrews quotes in chapter 5, verse 6, which we read a moment ago, and to which he refers time and again before the end of chapter 7. Psalm 110, verse 4, says that in addition to Melchizedek, God has also appointed another priest apart from the Mosaic Covenant and from outside the tribe of Levi. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus, we're being told in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is that priest. Jesus is a priest, not according to the order of Levi and his descendant Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest, not according to the terms of the old covenant, but according to a different kind of appointment. That's the key issue in all this discussion of Melchizedek here in this middle portion of Hebrews. Jesus is a priest, not according to the order of Levi, but according to a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And while the primary reason that the author of Hebrews points this out is to emphasize the superiority 
of Jesus' priesthood. I also want to point out now that Jesus' appointment as priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, also means simply that Jesus is not a usurper priest. That Jesus is not running roughshod over God's boundaries like Saul did on one occasion by taking the work of priest upon himself. That may be what the author is getting at in chapter 5, verse 5, when he says that Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. That Jesus did not appoint himself as a high priest, in other words. Just because Jesus isn't of the tribe of Levi doesn't mean that he is a self-appointed usurper of the priesthood. He has indeed been appointed by God, chapter 5, verse 6, and Psalm 110, but he's been appointed by God according to a different order. Outside the Mosaic Covenant, he has been appointed by God as priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This appointment, according to the order of Melchizedek, also provides an answer to our questions if, while we may not suspect Jesus for a usurper, yet we still find ourselves puzzled, how can Jesus be our priest since he's not of the tribe of Levi? That might puzzle someone as they read along. How can Christ be our priest if he's not of the tribe of Levi? We know the prophets came from various tribes, and we know that the kings came from Jesus' own tribe of Judah, and so there's no genealogical question mark as to whether Jesus can fulfill those two roles, as to whether Jesus can be prophet or king to his people. But since he is of the tribe of Judah, and since the old covenant priests were of the tribe of Levi only, it is important that we understand that there is another priestly order, that Christ is a priest according to the order of of Melchizedek. That's how it can be so. But now, just having thought about how Christ can be a priest and of what order he is, let's move on to discussing some other aspects of Christ's priesthood, beginning most basically with the activity of his priesthood. We need to think about the activity of Christ's priesthood. What does Christ do for us as priest? What ministry does he perform on our behalf? Every high priest taken from among men, we read in chapter 5, verse 1, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. But what things? Well, there are two activities of Christ, two particular ministries that Christ performs as priest on behalf of his people, and both of them fall under the larger category of mediation. Mediation. Christ is the mediator between God and men. That's what it means for him to be priest. He is the mediator between God and men. He's the go-between. He's the advocate. He is the umpire that Job spoke about, but whom he didn't think existed, who may lay his hand both upon God and upon men. To call Christ as priest is to recognize his ministry as go-between, as mediator between ourselves and the God from whom we have cut ourselves off by our sin. Like the priests of old, Christ stands and Christ has stood in the gap. And he lays and has laid his hands on both God and men to bring us together And he ministers on our behalf in this way before the Lord as a mediator. 
And like the priests of old, he does this in two particular ways. He mediates in two particular ways. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we quoted last week, points them out to us when it explains that he, Christ, is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our only high priest who, by the one sacrifice of his body, has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. Did you hear the two ways that Christ mediates for us, the two ways that he serves us as priests, the two ministries that he performs as priest? He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our only high priest who, by the one sacrifice of himself, sacrifice of his body, has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. Did you hear it? Christ's activity as our priest includes the sacrifice of his body and his continual intercession with the Father for us. His activity as our priest, his mediation includes sacrifice and supplication. Sacrifice and supplication. And this, of course, is what the Old Testament priests did as well and particularly with the high priests who offered the great sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, did. They offered, first of all, sacrifice. Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest taken from, taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And then again in chapter 8, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So one of the mediatory roles of the priests was to offer sacrifices, to offer the blood of bulls and goats on behalf of God's people as offerings for their sins. And Christ, our priest, has offered sacrifice as well, has he not? He has offered the sacrifice for our sins, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. At the consummation of the ages, chapter 9, verse 26, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He gave himself up for us, he, uh, Ephesians 5, 2, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And while we often focus on the fact that Christ himself was the sacrifice, that he offered himself to God on the altar, as it were, tonight we emphasize that he is the priest as well, that he is the one who made the offering, that he is the one who offered the sacrifice, that he is the one who did the mediating. Christ is our priest. Christ mediated for his people by the offering of the great And final sacrifice of himself for our sins. Praise God for such a priest. And then Christ is also our priest. He's also our mediator. Not only because of the sacrifice that he made. But also by means of the supplication. Which he continually makes as well. This too is part and part of the role of the Old Testament priest. Interceding for the people of God in prayer. And Christ does that for us as well. He always lives here in chapter 7, verse 25. He always 
lives to make intercession for them. Or in Romans 8, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What a thought, right? To think that it is not just we tonight who have prayed for Brad and for his family in their loss, but that the Son of God himself, the great high priest, is interceding for them tonight as well. And to think that he's praying over me as I try to proclaim him to you this evening, and that he's praying over you as you listen. And he's praying over you, he's offering his high priestly blessing over you, the Lord's blessing, the Lord's keeping, the Lord's grace, the Lord's peace, the Lord's shining face and uplifted countenance. He's praying these things over you in all of life's circumstances as your high priest. We have a marvelous record of one of Christ's prayers for his people, often called his high priestly prayer in John 17. And it would repay your time to read it through sometime soon. And listen to what he prayed. Listen to how he intercedes for his own. And then to remember that those lips engaged in such high priestly prayer in John 17 are still moving. He always lives. He is risen, in other words, Hebrews 7.25. And therefore his prayers have not ceased. Before the throne of God above, wrote Charity Lee's Bancroft, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So what does Christ do as our priest? What is the activity of his priesthood? Well, he is mediated for us by his sacrifice. And he has and does and will mediate for us by his supplication, his intercession, his prayer on our behalf. And now let's think not only about the activity of his priesthood, but also, secondly, about the superiority of his priesthood. The superiority of his priesthood. That's the main point being made in Hebrews chapter 7. And we can see it being made in other places in Hebrews as well. That Christ is a superior priest to the Levitical priests of old. And how so? How is Christ superior to Aaron and to all of Aaron's sons? Well, for one thing, Christ's priesthood is superior in its duration. In its duration. Look at verses 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 7. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. All the other priests, in other words, died, verse 23, and therefore there had to be a lot of them. But since Christ is risen, since he possesses an indestructible life, verse 16, his priesthood continues forever. And therefore his salvation is forever, too, verse 25. 
And then not only is Christ's priesthood superior in its duration, but also in its purity. In its purity. We read of the Levitical priests in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, that he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. But not so with Christ. For chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Christ did not need to sacrifice for himself, because, though tempted in all things as we are, chapter 4, he was and is Without sin, his priesthood is superior because his own character is superior to any other merely human priest. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Thank God we have a priest like that. And then notice that Christ's priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priests, not only in its duration and not only in its purity, but also in its location. In its location, chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. That's explained even in more detail in verse 24 of the same chapter. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the high priest, once a year, brought the blood of atonement on the day of atonement all the way into the very holy of holies. And that was a marvelous thing. An awesome privilege and responsibility and an awesome place for him to come and to bring the blood of the sacrifice. But you see, the tabernacle and the temple and their furnishings and the most holy place even were actually just replicas of the real thing. And replicas, as wonderful as they sometimes are, are still just replicas. You can go onto the Eiffel Tower at King's Island and it's pretty neat. It's not the same thing as being at the Eiffel Tower in Paris, is it? Replicas are still just replicas. But Christ, you see, did not present his sacrifice in the replica. He didn't bring his blood into the tabernacle, into the earthly temple. He brought it into the very throne room of God on our behalf. It is a superior priesthood in its location. And then notice that his priesthood is superior in terms of its sacrifice. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of 
sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, while, or excuse me, whereas the sacrifices of the old covenant priests were merely a shadow of the wrath-absorbing sacrifice that would come, Christ actually was that sacrifice. Christ, as priest, offered up the true propitiation for the sins of God's people. And because Christ's blood is the propitiation for all the sins of all God's people for all time, well then his sacrifice is also superior to that of the Levitical priest in terms of its finality. It's finality. He entered the holy place once for all, chapter 9, verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. His sacrifice for our redemption was once for all. It really is finished. The old covenant priests couldn't say that. They had to offer sacrifices time after time, chapter 10, verse 11. They had to offer sacrifices continually, year by year, we're told, because their sacrifices were only shadows. But Christ's sacrifice is final, and therefore he is the final high priest. So then, Christ's priesthood, his mediatorial ministry, is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood in terms of its duration, its purity, its location, its sacrifice, its finality. And then it's also superior in terms of the covenant which his priesthood mediates. Just read this in chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Christ is the mediator of a new, a better covenant, one in which all the members of the covenant will actually know the Lord. And returning to Melchizedek now briefly, it is because Christ is the mediator of a better covenant that he had to be a priest, chapter 7, from a better order, from a superior order. You can read that in chapter 7, verses 11 
through 22. So then, we've considered the activity of Christ's priesthood, his mediatory sacrifice and supplication. And we've considered the superiority of his priesthood in terms of its duration, its purity, its location, its sacrifice, its finality, its covenant, its order. And finally, as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, it will be well if we notice briefly before we close the exclusivity of Christ's priesthood. The exclusivity of his priesthood. We read in chapter 9, verse 12, that Christ's sacrifice was once for all. Once for all. One final, full, complete, finished sacrifice. Once for all. And we read the same thing in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And again, the same thing in chapter 10. Verses 11 and 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And those verses, chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, those verses show us, of course, that we do not need any other mediator that we do not need any other priest in terms of the sacrificial part of the priest's mediatorial work. We don't need anyone else to offer sacrifice for us. And then not only do we not need any other mediator, but we're told over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that we do not have any other mediator in this regard either. We do not have any other priest offering sacrifices for us either. For there is one God, Paul wrote to Timothy, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, it's true, we are all under the new covenant priests to our God, Revelation 5.10. And that means that in terms of supplication, in terms of intercessory prayer, we all have some priestly function in our relationship to one another. But there's only one high priest. And in regard to the priestly sacrifice, in regard to the priest's calling to stand in the gap between God and the sinner with the blood of the atonement, there is only one mediator. There's only one priest who can do that. Christ's priesthood in this regard is exclusive. We are saved, as the Reformers put it famously, in Christ alone. Your family cannot pay for a shorter time in purgatory, as if there were such a thing as purgatory. Not one red cent of the treasury of the merits of the saints, if there were such a thing, can be credited to your account. 
These are some of the things that the reformers were arguing against. In our own time, the blood of the sacrifice spilled every year by Muslims cannot atone for their sins. And neither can any of the good works that you or I may think to do to wash away the guilt of our sins. We cannot wash away our own sins, and neither can anyone else save Christ. We cannot bring ourselves to God, and neither can anyone else save Christ. His priesthood is exclusive. There is one and only one mediator between God and men. There is one and only one high priest. But praise God there is one. Praise God there is a mediator. And run to him, my friends. Trust in him. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water.